0: From the home studios of the teaching systems lab at mit this is teach lab i'm your host justin reich this week we're sharing our very first episode again a conversation with the incredible dr beverly daniel tatum throughout our conversation dr tatum offered some important guidance to teachers that we thought would be particularly useful to our listeners during these challenging times deep inequalities in our education systems are being revealed as never before through covid 19 And it's more important now than ever that we develop the skills to talk about race and difference and other taboo topics in our education systems. When we interviewed Dr. Tatum last fall, we asked her to write a personal letter directly to teachers, and we'll play it for you now.
1: Dear teacher, if you're a new teacher and you're teaching in an all-white classroom, a multicultural classroom, a majority kids of color classroom, it really doesn't matter what your student population is. What I hope for you is that you will get used to thinking about race as a topic you should talk about. Because if all your kids are white, they need to understand racism and how it operates in our society. If your kids are kids of color, they need to understand that what they experience in their daily lives has a name, and that if you can name it, you can change it, but you can't change it if you can't talk about it. So if you're nervous about having those conversations, I'm gonna invite you to read my book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria and Other Conversations About Race. If it makes you uncomfortable to have those conversations, I'm gonna recommend Robin DiAngelo's book, White Fragility, I think that's got a lot to offer, particularly young white teachers. But if there's anything I would urge you to do, I would urge you to practice those conversations with each other because they do get easier with practice.
0: The advice that Dr. Tatum offered was about talking about race, but it applies to so much of the work that we're doing right now with emergency remote learning. There's so much that we need to do that we have to try to tackle, even when we don't always have the right answers. So we have to dig in. We have to listen to our students. We have to listen to our colleagues about how things are going. We have to be willing to practice and iterate and try again and get better. For some school systems, you're beginning to wrap things up. You're celebrating graduation. You're getting ready to send your younger students home. In many places in the country, there's still a few more weeks left. And I hope that during that time you can keep thinking about what are the systems here that are really working? What are my students telling me that are really working? And for the things that aren't quite working yet, what's one more thing that I could try before the end of the year to make this a little bit better for the kids that I'm working with? Next week, we'll be back with a new episode in our COVID-19 series, talking with Paul Revel, founding director of the Harvard Graduate School of Education's Redesign Lab, and the former Secretary of Education for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Until then, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Tatum as much as I did. From the Teaching Systems Lab at MIT, this is Teach Lab, a podcast about the art and craft of teaching. I'm Justin Reich. Today, Beverly Daniel Tatum. She's a developmental psychologist, an author, and the President Emerita at Spelman College. Her book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria, was written for educators. And maybe you can relate to this. She developed the ideas in the book by teaching them to her students. It was part of a class she taught at Mount Holyoke called The Psychology of Racism. And one of the key ideas she tried to impart to those college students is that all of them, all of us, can take a leadership role in making institutions more sensitive towards inclusivity and more aware of the context of racism.
1: We often think about leaders as, you know, the people who run organizations. But the fact of the matter is we're all leaders. Everyone influences other people to some degree. Teachers are leaders in their classroom. Parents are leaders at home. And so what was most rewarding for me was for my students to really give serious thought to their own leadership capacity and to think about how they could use it. So at the end of every semester, I would ask students to develop an action plan. Mm. And those action plans might vary from leading an Unlearning Racism workshop and Their residence hall, to planning a family intervention at Thanksgiving, you know, to uh, doing a letter writing campaign about um, stereotypical advertising Mm -hmm. or problematic messages in a favorite television program. You know, lots of different ways of thinking about it.
0: Dr. Tatum's book did impact education, but of course the issues she addressed in 1997 are still with us today. I asked her to share what advice she has for schools who are tackling the challenge of creating an inclusive, welcoming learning environment.
1: Well, I would probably talk about what I call the ABCs. A stands for Affirming Identity, Mm -hmm. B stands for Building Community, And C stands for cultivating leadership. So to elaborate on that, the A is, of course, the most, I like to think of the A as the most important, Mm -hmm. the starting place. The A, affirming identity, really speaks to the fact that everyone wants to be seen, heard, and understood. And how do we know we have been seen, or heard, or understood? When we see ourselves reflected in the environments around us, then we know that someone's noticed us, right? Mm -hmm. That we have been seen. And so, for example, If we were all together in a room and someone took a group photo, Mm -hmm. you know, the photographer took a picture of everybody in the room, told us to arrange ourselves and smile, and we got our picture taken, and a copy of that photo was given to each of us, the first thing any one of us would do when we got our copy would be to look for ourselves in that photo. You know, you'd look to say, okay, where Where am am I I? in this picture? And not only would you want to see yourself in the picture, but you would want to see yourself in the picture... Looking good, Mm -hmm, (laughs) you know, you would be evaluating, uh, was I smiling, are my eyes open? You know, how did that outfit look today? And so, if we think about the learning environment, the classroom, the school, as like a big photograph, we step into that photograph and we want to see ourselves in it. Mm -hmm. We want to see ourselves in the curriculum. We want to see ourselves standing in front of the room sometimes, if not all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, We want to see ourselves uh, being recognized as part of this learning community in very tangible ways, in ways that white children regularly see themselves. Mm -hmm. Uh, They don't really have to think much about it because even If the teacher doesn't look like them, they're in the textbooks, they're in the reading room, library materials, they're everywhere. And so we have to be more intentional about making sure that kids are not invisible.
0: Well, I want to make sure you get a chance to tell us about B and C too. But but drilling down on affirming. So there's some things that teachers and educators can do to build a more affirming environment. um, before kids are in the room, they can yes. think about what's on the walls, they Absolutely. can think about what's in their libraries, they can think about um, what materials might, what topics are we choosing to delve more deeply into, um, and knowing something about my kids and where they're from, how are, how are they gonna see themselves in that? Right. Um, if I was in the classroom with a teacher who's doing a really good job of affirming identity, do you have examples of sort of what moves I would see that teacher making or what kinds of things that teacher might be doing? What are the sort of actions, what are the behaviors that we can kind of cultivate in teachers that have that, that are characteristic of people who are really good at affirming?
1: Well, let's imagine that the materials are there. Mm-hmm. Let's imagine there's a diversity of materials and let's imagine that Um, kids are being given some free choice time. And let's imagine you have a reluctant reader. Maybe that reluctant reader says, I'm not into books. You know, I don't really like to read. Mm -hmm. And you might say to that person, well, you know, I know it's not your favorite thing, but I have a book that I think you might really be interested in, and then pulls out a book that does represent that kid in some meaningful way. Um, I had an experience of this Mm. with a relative. I have two sons. My sons are four years apart, six and 10 at the time that this happened. They're they're now (laughs) in their 30s, right? But um, they had cousins, two cousins a similar age, six and 10. And they were spending several weeks with us in the summer. And um, the 10 year old said just that he wasn't into reading. My kids were voracious readers. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to get him to read. And he said, I don't like to read. And he wasn't an excellent student. He was doing okay in school. But, yep. um, but anyway, I said, well, I have some books you might be interested in. Let me just show you one. And I handed him a book. Uh, the title of it was Wagon Wheels. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of your teachers listening might know this book, but it's about a black family after the end of the Civil War traveling west to settle in a what was a black community in Kansas, Nicodemus, mm-hmm. Kansas. And according to the story, it's based on a true story, actually. According to the story, the mother, unfortunately, has died. And so the father is single parent with these two boys, and they're going out west to settle. It's a it's very adventurous. And at a certain point, the father has to go ahead alone and leaves the oldest oh. boy in charge of his younger brother. There might have been actually three boys, so mm-hmm. two younger siblings. And they have to really... Survive think on the trail to out west. have survive on the trail out west, and it's quite an adventure, and they are very successful. They have some assistance from some local Indians, I think, that they meet up with. But I, when I offered him this book, he was skeptical, but then he read it voraciously. Yep. And so the question we have to ask is, you know, are we engaging kids in a way that captures their imaginations and allows them to feel part of the story?
0: And for us here at MIT, I think one of the things that we try to think about in our lab is not only doing that and the humanities. But where else does that fit in the science and technical subjects? You know, that was why it was such a tremendous contribution. The movie Hidden Figures. I was just thinking it when you you said that. There's this incredible history of African-American women, women in general, who are absolutely central to the history of computer science and trying to, you know, both say, look, that that conversations about power and race and identity are meant to be part of technical topics. I mean, physics and chemistry and math and computer science. It's not just how we how we accomplish things, but it's realizing that these or things that are part of society.
1: Absolutely, and of course, right now, we're talking about the um, missing information, the hidden figures, particularly mm. as it relates to African-American history in the United States, but similar stories could be shared about other underrepresented groups as well. And so that's the A, so mm-hmm. let's talk about okay, the B. Great. So the B is about building community. How do we create a sense of shared belonging? And the B and the A really go together Mm -hmm. because if we're doing activities in the classroom where some of the kids feel left out, feel invisible, feel marginalized, they don't actively participate. Mm -hmm. Every learning community... Every teacher, every school leader is thinking about how do we create a sense of belonging so that people are motivated and wanna be part of this community. Sometimes they're reluctant to focus on the A because they think, well, if I really pay attention to the differences, I will somehow lead to Make
0: things worse.
1: Exactly, I will make things worse rather than bring people together. If we
0: don't talk about it, it's not a problem.
1: Exactly, exactly. But the fact of the matter is It may not be on your radar that it's a problem, but for the kid who feels invisible in that classroom, it already is a a problem. problem, It already is a problem. So thinking about the B in the context of the A is the really critical thing. Mm -hmm. How do we think about um, what we're doing in new ways? And sometimes those new ways might mean... Creating a special club, particularly at the middle school level, you know, we might have uh, affinity groups. Some schools have them and have used them very effectively. Other schools worry that that's going to cause separation. But um, acknowledging the developmental needs of kids who are really thinking about their identity issues, particularly in early adolescence, can be an important part of building community. But it certainly extending all the way
0: community. through, uh, through um, higher education. I mean, Absolutely. we have, you know, really powerful, effective the Black Student Union here is Absolutely. an incredible group for organizing. But you know, Both, I think, conversations with people about what does it mean to be an African American at MIT, which is a challenging thing given the limited number of faculty. You know, we have amazing African American faculty yes, here, but, but we don't have as many longer. of them as we would like, mm-hmm. and uh, as well as the programming that they can offer to the rest of the community to help us um, see what things look like through their eyes and through their perspective. So through middle school all the way up through uh, older ages, I think they're for right.
1: well. And then the C, cultivating leadership is about helping all of our students, uh, whether they are underrepresented or part of the majority, think about or develop the skills for connecting across lines of difference. What we know in today's society is that most of our students are growing up in relatively segregated communities. Mm-hmm. And as a consequence of that, particularly when they come to college or um going to the military or, you know, going to the workplace, they find themselves in communities that are more diverse than the ones they grew up Mm -hmm. in. Those who come into higher education have a unique opportunity to have direct contact with people they didn't have direct contact with in their elementary, middle even high school sometimes. And so it means that there's an opportunity to learn some new things. But if we don't take full advantage of that opportunity, then it is lost and perhaps won't be replicated again.
0: The question, um, why do all the black kids sit together in a cafeteria? One of the things it evokes for me is um Uh, So I was a young white teacher when I finished in college. I went and I taught in high school. Um, Uh I actually taught in a school that was organized. It was a high school around a really long hallway, um, and there were five alcoves. So the freshmen Uh had an alcove, and the sophomores had an alcove, the juniors and the seniors, and there was one alcove in the middle that was called the black alcove, Uh Um, and this was a place where African American and then eventually Latino students um, would congregate, Um,
1: regardless of grade
0: year. Yeah, regardless of grade year. So obviously there, you know, and there's sometimes there are white kids who are sitting in the black alcove and sometimes yeah. there, are, you know, there are African-American kids who are sitting with the sophomores because they were sophomores, um, but it was a distinctive feature of school life. I thought a lot at the time um, about walking by the alcove. So when, when the black kids are sitting together in the cafeteria, or in my case, when black kids are sitting together in the alcove, what are some of the most productive ways that white teachers can walk by, can be near that space? Is the thing to do to like, leave them alone and to do their thing? Like how you know, what, what can white teachers do sort of in that moment in interactions with the black kids sitting together that build upon the ABCs as you describe them?
1: Well, the first thing I think to acknowledge is the value that can come from gathering with students or having a shared experience. Mm -hmm. So... When I wrote my book back in 1997, the first version of it, um, and titled it, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria and Other Conversations About Race, it was in part because of my experience working as a consultant, sometimes coming to do professional development. In schools that were majority white but had a significant population of black students, enough for them to be sitting together yep. in the cafeteria, people would always ask me that question, and they would ask it as though they were concerned that it was a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, like, why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria, and what can we do to make them stop? Uh,
0: mm-hmm. and, you
1: know, it was like that kind of a question. Mm-hmm. And and so part of what I talk about in the book is the value that can come from sitting together with people with whom you have some shared sense of identity, particularly when you're a teenager and actively beginning to explore that identity. Mm-hmm. So I want to say it's a perfectly fine question to ask, but let's not assume it's a problem. Right, right. That said, it is also important for students and teachers to learn how to connect across lines of difference. And so I often say, let's worry less about who's sitting where during the break times, Mm -hmm. and think about what's happening inside the classroom. Mm. Social psychology tells us that the best way to build positive cross-racial relationships is to give a group a task where they're working together toward a shared goal, Mm -hmm. where they've come together on equal footing, and where that cooperative collaborative behavior is sanctioned by an adult in authority. So a teacher at the front of the classroom can put kids in mixed groups, can have them working on projects together, can give them opportunities to really get to know each other on a level playing field relative to the task that they've been asked to do. Sports teams are an example of this, of course, where the coach is supporting the cross-group engagement. But when you give... um, kids those opportunities, that activity often spills over into the classroom Uh or into the alcoves. And the teacher, who is seen as an ally, um, as someone who authentically cares about, knows me, knows my name, uh, talks to me about my interests, engages me in conversation— Inside the classroom is likely to be the teacher that I'm going to spontaneously speak to yep. when they pass by me on the hall.
0: Yeah, the bu- building those relationships in classroom, being attentive. I, I mean, I remember in my in my third year of teaching. Part, part of what shaped my experience there was I taught a class called Race in America uh-huh. um, as a as a social studies elective. Yes. But the experience of building more relationships as a teacher there, I remember I remember be, you know being more deliberate my third year of like walking more slowly by the black alcove and, and thinking to myself, like, if they're having a good time, I'm not gonna do anything. But I want them to see that I'm looking at them. I want them yeah. to see, like if I see some kind of like like they want to wave and say, Hey, Mr. Reich, hey Coach Reich, or if they uh-huh. if they want to reach out, I wanna be there for them, and then if they want me to just keep walking by because they're doing something else, I want to sort of yeah. leave them alone. But trying to be intentional about you know i see you and i'm here if you need me
1: yeah yeah it's not unlike you know a parent child relationship Mm. in adolescence you know there are times when your teenagers want to talk to you and sometimes Sometimes they don't don't. (laughs) and sometimes it's just being available so if they do they will
0: so one of the things that we try to do in our lab is to create opportunities for people to practice difficult situations. Yes. Um, and so whether, you know, through simulations or other kinds of things, we sort of create these moments where teachers have to have to tackle particularly challenging moments in teaching. Um, if you were creating some of those situations, what would, what would be ones that you would sort of put together to kind of provoke, you know, particularly for new teachers or particularly yeah. for white teachers, kind of challenging interactions that you wish teachers on average would be able to do better than they currently do?
1: In general, I would say to teachers, don't be afraid to talk about race. Mm-hmm. Now, I know that's easier said than done. Yep. Um, and one of the things that I found when I was doing a lot of professional development um, in the greater Boston area, I was often working with white teachers But yet these were teachers who were working with kids from the Boston area who were bused into their communities through what is known as the METCO program. And, of course, listeners in the Boston area will know that that's a voluntary desegregation program that's been in place probably close to 50 years now. But one of the things that I found was that white teachers in particular struggled with giving honest feedback Mm. to students of color, Mm -hmm. Um, particularly adolescents, because their fear was that either this kid or the kid's parent would perceive their negative feedback, or I'm going to call it critical feedback, um, as somehow being racially motivated. Mm -hmm. You know, like you're picking on my kid. You're not, you don't like my kid. You're giving my, you're telling my kid isn't doing what he needs to do in your class because you are, quote, a racist. Right. And I once asked a teacher what would it feel like if someone said that to her. And she said, I would feel like I'd been punched in the stomach mm. because no one wants to be labeled with that R word. Right. You know, And and because of that, because of that fear— Unfortunately, it was leading to some very unproductive behavior as in not giving the feedback, right. you know. So, let's say you've got, you know, Michael in your class and Michael has not been getting his homework done and hasn't been turning it in and you need Michael to do that in order to be successful in your class and yet you're hesitant to either give Michael that honest feedback, or you don't want to call Michael's mother or his father to talk to him, uh, talk to them about Michael's performance for fear that somehow your critique of Michael will be misunderstood. If you withhold that information, then, in some ways, you are being discriminatory because you're giving that information to Tommy, the kid in yep. the, you know, the suburban white family. Uh, his who parents, needs that
0: and can use that to get better. Yes, but Michael's ex- not getting it.
1: Exactly. So we talked about. Well, let's imagine that happens. Let's imagine you have some concerns about Michael's performance, not just his homework, maybe his attitude. You know, you've got some things you want to share with Michael's parents and Michael's parents accuse you of being racist. What would you do? Yeah. And she talked about how she would be very just paralyzed by that. And the first response perhaps is to defend oneself. Yeah. Of course I'm not, you know, not a prejudiced bone in my body. Right. I don't even
0: see race. I don't see color. Yes,
1: exactly. That is not a useful response. But what would be a useful response? The response that I tell teachers is to ask for more information. Mm. You know, what if someone said, well, I think that was really a racist response. Help me understand that. Why did you think that? You know, what was it that I said or did that gave you that impression? you're asking for more information and usually the person on the other end responds with surprise because they're expecting the defensive right. response you know but if you say you know that was not my intention can you help me understand what I did that left you with that impression that's the opening for a dialogue which can then be very productive
0: mm-hmm. and there may be ways that teachers can even like practice some of those hard yes. moments and, and say well what could I do more I mean it's probably it's probably somewhat challenging to ask that question to a parent it's what do you feel like I did that was racist it's probably even more challenging to ask that to a 16 year old or a 17 year old and say no yeah. no no really honestly I just want to hear from you uh, I'm not trying to ask this in an accusatory way just what was it that I did that made you feel like I was racist because I want to know
1: well and I found that um, when working with teachers when they did ask that question and they asked it sincerely, they often learn things that they weren't even aware of. You know, I'll give a common example in a high school situation where one kid has raised his hand and asked for the pass to go to the restroom Mm -hmm. and gets the pass and goes and comes back. And another kid asks for that pass and either he's told to wait or takes the pass and is criticized for being gone too long. Yep. And someone in that room is timing.
0: Uh-huh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you
1: know, Probably say, not the teacher. <laughs> yes. Someone in that room is can come back and say, well, you know, when John went... I was looking at my watch he was gone two minutes mm-hmm. you know when Jamal went he wasn't gone more than two minutes either but you said something Jamal you didn't say anything to John you know Jamal's absence was noticed more than John's absence was um so that is part of the conversation but being open to the conversation getting over the fear of even having it is really important. One of the things that I did a research project a long time ago uh, which turned into a book of a different title Uh, That book is called Assimilation Blues, Black Families in a White Community. Mm. And I was interviewing parents about their experiences in their children's schools. Black parents were living in a predominantly white community where their kids were often sometimes the only black kid in the class, one of few. And one father said it really bothered him when teachers said they treated all the kids the same. And his response to that was always the same as what? Mm-hmm. You know, um, the same as though they're all white. They're not all white. You know, my kid is having a different experience in this school than the white kids are having. If for no other reason, than he's not seeing himself represented in the curriculum. And so being willing to acknowledge that not all the kids are having the same experience, and that there is a context in which we're all operating, mm-hmm. a context which reinforces messages about uh, the uh, what I'm going to call a hierarchy of human value. Yeah. You know, where some groups are valued more highly than other groups, and if we don't acknowledge that, we can't fix it.
0: If we can't talk about it, we can't fix it.
1: Yes, and so that I think is something that teachers can practice with each other um, in a supportive way.
0: Some of the organizations that I worked with are, for instance, Facing History and Ourselves, Mm -hmm. um, an amazing organization that that works with teachers around identity. And there is a sort of, you know, background constant fear, talking about the Holocaust, talking about reconstruction that teachers are going to talk about this in ways that are harmful to students that they're going to you know, that everyone's i mean the classic sort of holocaust example is what, like would what people do simulations yeah. of tra- you know just things that make you go oh my gosh i can't believe that you would think that would be okay yes. um, as you as you encourage teachers to have more conversations about race are there any things that particularly worry you of like have more conversations about race but but not like that that's yes. not what i meant
1: yeah Well, I think it is really important to create um, a community of practice so that you can get feedback. Mm. Um, You know, we all make mistakes, and... I started teaching my first class on racism. I taught that class for the first time when I was 26 years old Mm -hmm. uh, in 1980, and I certainly made mistakes. So I always like to say, if we wait for perfection, we will never get started. So we know mistakes are going to happen. But if you have a community of peers that you're regularly talking to, you can get feedback, you can get better. If you make a mistake in class, you can come back next week and say, class, you know, We were doing this thing, and I said something I wish I hadn't said or I did something that I'm not sure was that helpful, and so I really want to see if we can revisit that today because Mm -hmm. I've been thinking about it. There are ways to kind of correct one's errors that um, students appreciate. That said, there's nothing better than being able to have real-time feedback from peers who are also working with these issues. And there are schools that create those learning groups that read things together, that talk to each other about these issues. And I think that helps.
0: I mean, that's such great, concrete, actionable advice. Sort of have conversations about race. Be ready to have those conversations about race. Do it with a community of peers so that there are people checking about the things that you're trying to do, that you're bouncing ideas off each yes. other. This is what I'm going to do for the next couple of weeks, and it's going to be new. How does this sound? Yes. Um, and then being willing to recognize that you'll make some mistakes, to acknowledge those mistakes, and to to go back to your students and say, I don't think that was what I meant to do. I think I did that wrong. Can we, you know, can we have a do-over? Can we talk about why I don't think that was right? Or you're already telling me why I don't think that's right, and I want you to know that I heard it. Um, Those sound like great, actionable things to be able to do. Well, Dr. Tatum, this has been an incredibly productive and rewarding conversation.
1: Well, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: That was Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum. Dr. Tatum is President Emerita of Spelman College and the author of Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria and Other Conversations About Race. I'm Justin Reich. You've been listening to Teach Lab from the Teaching Systems Lab at MIT. You can find more resources from Dr. Tatum at our website, teachlabpodcast.com. That's teachlabpodcast.com. This episode was produced by Jesse Dukes and Garrett Beasley, edited by Amy Corgan, recorded and mixed by Garrett Beasley, and filmed by Denez McAdoo. Everything we produce at the Teaching Systems Lab is licensed under a Creative Commons license, and we encourage you to share it and use it. Thanks for listening to Teach Lab, and special thanks to Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum for this powerful conversation. Be sure to subscribe to Teach Lab and join us next week for our conversation with Paul Revel. Stay safe. Until next time.